Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, this is Peter Lewis and welcome to Money Talk on Friday the 19th of May. Just a reminder of all the ways you can listen and connect with the show. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. If you go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, you'll find all the links to your favourite podcast apps there. The programme's also on Facebook, Peter Lewis Money Talk is the page, and I'm on Twitter, at MoneyTalkR3. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, global leaders have gathered for the three-day annual Group of Seven meetings starting today in Hiroshima, Japan. G7 leaders are set to make a priority of countering Beijing and Moscow with action plans tailored to key partner countries. President Joe Biden aims this week to hammer out with other world leaders a unified response to what they describe as Chinese economic coercion. Meanwhile, at the same time, President Xi Jinping is hosting a two-day summit of Central Asian leaders, where trade ties, regional security concerns and Russia's war in Ukraine will dominate the agenda. Leaders from Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan have gathered at the same time as G7 leaders meet in Japan. President Xi is expected to deliver a keynote speech at the summit, announcing new measures for cooperation between the six nations. Three of the world's biggest semiconductor makers will expand investments in Japan as part of a historic global supply chain shift away from China. The investments are part of a G7 effort to strengthen the chip supply chain. US chipmaker Micron, which is being probed by Chinese authorities, will invest up to 3.7 billion US dollars, including Japanese government subsidies, to produce cutting-edge extreme ultraviolet lithography technology in Hiroshima. South Korea's Samsung Electronics and Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturing company will also expand investment in Japan. Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba posted weaker-than-expected revenues in the first quarterly earnings report since splitting into six units. Revenue was up 2% year-on-year to US$29.6 billion. Alibaba will spin off China's biggest cloud services platform as a dividend to shareholders. The cloud business, one of the company's most important growth engines, will be listed in 12 months, meaning Alibaba could relinquish control of one of its fastest-growing businesses. On today's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Sam Favre, CEO at Mandarin Capital. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, Director at Staten Advice. US stocks were firmer for a second day on Thursday, with the technology sector outperforming on hopes for a debt ceiling resolution. The S&P 500 added 0.9% to end at 4,198. That's its highest close since August 2022. The tech-heavy Nasdaq also reached a nine-month high, gaining 1.5% to finish at 12,689. And the Nasdaq is on course to end the week over 3% higher. The Dow finished with gains of 115 points, or a third of a percent, to close at 33,536 after trading down for most of the session. Treasury yields jumped higher after two Fed officials suggested interest rates could rise again in June. The two-year Treasury yield rose 10 basis points to 4.26%. The 10-year yield closed 8 basis points higher at 3.65%. 
Japanese markets extended their winning streak on Thursday, with the Nikkei 225 leading gains in the region. It added 1.6% Wednesday to 30,574, and that took its gains for the year so far to over 17%, making it the best-performing major market in Asia. The topics maintain levels not seen since August 1990, climbing another 1.1% Wednesday. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index rebounded yesterday after Wednesday's late sell-off, climbing 167 points, or 0.9% to 19,727. The tech index jumped 1.2%. Alibaba rose 2.7% ahead of its earnings report. Mainland Chinese markets were also higher, with the Shanghai Composite up 0.4% to 3,297. Investors were hoping that the weak economic activity data from China on Tuesday could spark more policy support from Beijing, including a cut to the reserve requirement ratio. And futures markets are pointing to a loss of around 150 points, or 0.8% for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. That's right. Hey, it's the end of the week. Let's welcome our guests. We have Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, with us. Morning, Francis. Morning. And also with us, Sam Favre, who's Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital. Morning to you, Sam. Morning, Peter. Um, let's start with the G7. Global leaders have gathered for the three-day annual Group of Seven meeting starting today in Hiroshima in Japan. The G7 meeting is the latest focal point of the fight for global influence between the West and its allies and authoritarian nations such as China and Russia. G7 leaders are set to make a priority of countering Beijing and Moscow with action plans which they hope to tailor to key partner countries. President Joe Biden and G7 leaders aim in Japan this week to hammer out a unified response to what they describe as Chinese economic coercion as China finds itself increasingly isolated within the US-led system. Um, Francis, I suspect uh, we're going to see a lot of China bashing this weekend, aren't we, at this G7? Yeah, definitely, especially that it is in Japan, <laughs> which is mm. one of the uh, main opponents of China because, of course, uh, the Second World War and all, all these uh, uh, historic uh, legacies. I think the, the, the thing is uh, the, the U.S. have been dominating the global uh, seed since uh, the Second World War and nobody uh, except uh, the Soviet Union militarily can counter its influence. But now China has emerged and uh, with the economic cloud to match Mm. the U.S. And, and, and in addition, since the uh, One Belt and One Road uh, uh, initiative, uh, it is uh, uh, hitting uh, the U.S. In, in the soft belly in the third world country and in the Pacific Ocean. And mm. that, is, uh, that was uh, considered the U.S.'s uh, uh, back uh, garden. And now <laughs> China is actively courting the South Pacific Islands. So, so the U.S. is really <laughs> trying to play catch up with China in the dom- uh, diplomatic front and also the economic front. So is this all about containing China? The U.S. say it says it isn't. It's not trying to constrain its growth, but is it? Yeah, definitely. I think, I think especially uh, 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 in the high tech, in, in the semiconductor world, and, uh, and uh, the U.S. is do, going all out 
to lock uh, China out of the semiconductor race. Mm. Uh, and uh, just look at one area. Uh, China has surpassed Japan to become the biggest uh, auto exporters in the world. In just a few years, 10 years ago, uh, China doesn't even have a, a, an export auto industry. Mm. So they're really worried. Sam, what's wrong with that? I mean, it's quite fair, isn't it, that China should want to develop its industry, should want to grow, and if it wants to, develop relationships with its own partners around the world. And and that's absolutely fair. The only problem is also the reciprocity and access to the market. And I think you have seen that for the last 20 years, the Chinese market for foreign companies has been more more or less closed. And you have to remember that since they started in back opening the the economy, there's been a lot of things based on JV and also technology transfers, which actually mm. was forced. So mm. I understand the bashing to some extent because there's also political motivations with re-elections. But I think there needs to come also with a fair level play economically. Not saying that the US are fair all the time about what they're doing. <laughs> definitely not. But there sh- definitely needs to be some kind of rules playing, uh, consistent rule playing, because Chinese rules keep on, you know, they're, they're fluid, they're moving all the time. You're coming there, you don't know what's going to happen, and then the next day they change the rules. And I think that has been a big problem with China, and the problem is confidence. So they need to set the rules, everybody understands the rules, and then it will be a lot clearer. Because that's, you know, that has been one of the major problems of our trust between the partners. Talking about Belt and Road Initiative, there has been both Belt and Road Initiatives back in Europe, and that's failed miserably because of this trust issue. So... The, the blame is, is on both sides, I think, on that one. But isn't the American response the wrong one? Because in effect, what it's doing um, is it's closing off its own economy to, to Chinese companies as well. It's closing off investment into certain sectors um, in, into China. Um, and it's launched this huge, if you like, industrial program of subsidizing certain firms in, in certain sectors, paying massive subsidies to them. That, that, is that the right response to what it perceives um, as being an unequal playing field? So far, the economy in the U.S. is doing well. And, you know, technologically, I mean, the big advances have always been linked to military. So it has always been more or less subsidized to some extent. Whether it's in China, we're seeing at the moment, you know, what's happening in terms of technology development is linked to the uh, military industry as well, same as the U.S. So it's part of the subsidies has always been there. So while we're talking very, very high tech, that's not as clear as the economy is being open. So whether it's right or not, I think there needs to come out some kind of consensus. But no one is willing to get to the ta- to the table and find a consensus at the moment. Um, Francis, is the world splitting into two blocks? Is oh, that definitely, the risk? Uh, most definitely. It, it is the uh, Western democracies plus uh, uh, Japan and South Korea against uh, China and Russia and the and all these dictators like the Shanghai Pact, the Central Asian uh, Five countries. Uh, North Korea and uh, Iran, and uh, and you have the world split into two two big blocks, and with uh, India trying to play in the middle to mm-hmm. get the best of both worlds. <laughs> I was going to ask you about India because it's, it's almost as if you know the the G seven it's holding out olive branches to all sorts of countries, isn't yeah. it? To Vietnam, to Brazil, to Kazakhstan, and at the same time, China is also. Um, wants to wants to deal with those countries and and India is sort of 
of intriguingly in the middle, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, well, uh, uh, chi- uh, India has always been uh, an enemy uh, to China ever since the 1960 border war. And uh, India lost that one, and they always remember that. And uh, and economically, uh, India is something like uh, only maybe one tenth of uh, of China, despite with the same population. So India has a lot of catch up to do. Of course, China shot itself in the foot uh, during the past three years uh, by imposing draconian uh, lockdown. So a lot of this uh, global manufacturing uh, has actually moved to India, the mm-hmm. only other pop, uh, pop, uh, big population country with the size to uh, produce a lot of the industrial goods. But the internal rules and regulations are really too complex for multinationals to operate. But India's benefited really from uh, from the Ukraine war, hasn't it? Through its Definitely. oil exports. I mean, it's how much has it saved um, on, <laughs> on those uh, those imports? Billions of dollars. Uh, they, an estimate I saw says maybe it saved five billion dollars yeah. on its crude oil purchases from Moscow. So, it, although it's in the middle gives the impression that it doesn't want to take sides economically, um, it's reaping the benefits. Yeah, actually, uh, uh, even countries in Southeast Asia, they, they want the, uh, 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 to benefit from both sides. Look at uh, uh, Malaysia and Thailand. They want uh, uh, Japan, both Japan and China, to build railways for them free. Mm. <laughs> and they're getting it. And they're getting it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it. Well, that's, that's the difference, isn't it? Yeah, China turns right. up with the money, America turns up with lots of promises and, and lectures countries, but China turns up with the money. Yeah, but Japan is also emptying up the money and too. And Japan as well, yes. <laughs> Sam, where, where does India fit into all of this? It's in an intriguing position, is it? Because while the G7's going on, India is uh, holding the G20 uh, presidency at the same time. India's a very interesting place and will be for the next 20 years, the problem of, of India is really a top-down organization. There's really, compared to China, we have a clear roadmap and very, very clear organization in India. is very chaotic. Mm. So I think, you know, there's, there will be a trend of rebalancing just, just because of simple demographics about the, uh, you know, in the next 20 years. India will keep growing. They've got cheap labor. So naturally, you will have with China moving up the chain, you will have mm. to have some rebalancing in the countries. And it will catch up. And which is what is very interesting, we're seeing them moving up the scales technologically very quickly, much quicker than I think everybody anticipated. And that's because of geopolitics. But I think what is also very interesting is Japan, because I think what we're seeing is not a one-year, two-year trend. We're seeing a multi-year trend starting with a lot of high advanced technology moving back. Because if you look at Japan infrastructure, they have absolutely everything. They've got skilled labors. And, you know, looking back, prices haven't moved for the last 20 years. So what used to be a very expensive country now is a fairly decently priced country where you can start reinvesting with, uh, at the moment, again, you can change fairly uh, business-friendly environment. And is that why then we're seeing global chip makers now talking about expanding in uh, in Japan? We've got Micron, uh, Samsung Electronics, Taiwan Semiconductor, all announcing investments in Japan, all with the help, of course, of Japanese government's uh, subsidies. But is this also going to be the trend now that we're going to see this shift um, away from China into a country like Japan? Yeah, I think that's yeah, most definitely China and Taiwan. 
Yeah, but but the problem with uh, Japan is that they are short of labor. They have a declining population, and they don't want to import labor. That is a big problem. Yeah, mm. but for high-end technologies like this, you don't need a lot of laborers. So uh-huh. that's you know very automated industry. So I agree on this. They also have a potential energy problem, which they need to solve. Uh, but again, it's all about investment. And Japan has been asleep for the last 20 years, but it's probably the sleeping giant of, your, of uh, Asia, which is waking up. And I don't think people have realized that. And also what you're seeing in Japan very, very quietly is uh, Japan, Japan started to rearm. Mm. That is another, another equation, so another part of the equation. So this is also going to be a key uh, country in the splitting of the, the globe into two blocks. Japan and South Korea now are, um, are firmly aligned with, uh, with the US and the West. Yeah, the problem is uh, China is supporting North Korea. So uh, South Korea and and Japan are natural enemies of North Korea because uh, Kim Jong-un's nuclear weapons and has everybody on edge. Mm. Well, on on the the supply chain thing, what about India once again? Because India also wants to become um, an electronics manufacturing hub. It announced um, a 170 billion rupee plan. That's about 2.1 billion US dollars uh, to attract electronics manufacturing firms to the country as companies look to diversify supply chains beyond China. President uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi is building on the success of Apple's local assembly operations, which now produce about 7% of its global iPhone output to pitch the country as a global manufacturing hub. Well, can, can India be also a, a global manufacturing hub? Well, I think they have to change their mindset because uh, India has been very anti-foreign investment in the past. Uh, uh, look at the Walmart, they put all kinds of roadblocks to prevent it from uh, operating a, a, a big chain. Uh, look at uh, uh, Hutchinson's uh, three, uh, and they and they uh, tax tax free uh, uh, the uh, the uh, telephone operator into making no profit at all. So, so I, th- I think a lot of these regulations, especially the mindset of the officials and actually the people who is really not that friendly toward uh, foreign investment. So uh, until they change it, I. I I don't think they can become as uh, as big as China, not yet, at least not in the next 10 years. But Sam, India has sort of crossed a, a landmark, doesn't it? It's now exporting about $11 billion of mobile phones in, in the past year. You feel that suddenly things are starting to change for the country and it's taking a step up? Yeah, but you have to be careful because there's a difference between assembling products and producing high-tech. So uh, that's uh, the next step. And I agree with uh, Francis. There's a lot of mindset that needs to be sorted, infrastructure needs to be sorted in terms of corruption. I think it's a big difference between Apple saying, I'm going to invest in India. Everything is really controlled and trying to build you know, a major infrastructure in, uh, in semiconductors. I mean, at the end of the day, you cross the border from here and you've got the biggest supermarket for all electronic equipment in the world. And that's not replicable. And that's, you cannot replicate that within the next two to three years. It is tenuous uh, planning, willingness of every party from domestic, which we saw in China, and when they commit to an industry, they commit hard, and from the uh, domestic players and the uh, foreigners. So there's a lot of, you know, face goodwill at the moment. Let's see in practice if uh, that's going to be implemented.
Now, in parallel with the G7 meeting in Hiroshima, President Xi Jinping aims to deepen Beijing's influence at a summit of Central Asian leaders, where trade ties, regional security concerns and Russia's war in Ukraine is going to dominate the agenda at the two-day summit in Xi'an. Leaders from Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan have gathered. Um, at the same time as the G7 meeting in, in Japan, notably absent from that meeting, though, is Russia's President Vladimir Putin. And President Xi is expected to deliver a keynote speech announcing new measures for cooperation between the six nations. So, um, Francis, how significant is this? Well, this is really these uh, Central Asian five uh, dictators trying to ask for help for China in, in trying to contain the discontent from the people. All, all of these uh, 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 dictators with authoritarian regimes, what they really want is China's really control of the masses. China has the technology uh, to control everyone. And, and of course, uh, Russia uh, want to control uh, Central Asia militarily too. So Central Asian five countries will, will be dependent on China and Russia for a long time to come uh, uh, because the, the the rulers need their support. And these these nations, of course, are wary of Russia, aren't they? Because uh, yeah. they, they've seen what's happened to Ukraine to former Soviet <laughs> states. Well, well, well uh, uh, the uh, Central Asian country were, uh, uh, were conquered by the Shah in late, uh, 1800s, I mean, 19th century. So, so culturally, they don't form part of Russia, mm. but but still, it was part of the Soviet Empire. So they they're really weary about uh, Russia. Do, do you think this could be a significant block? I mean, these these countries, Sam, they have a lot of minerals, don't they? A lot of things that uh, that the world needs. Actually, actually, I don't think it's, I think it could actually be the reverse because it starts to be a zone of influence where Putin and potentially uh, China starts to clash uh, for those specific reserves. And it's interesting that we're seeing China starting to speak up a lot more on those countries, which traditionally have been, you know, the backyard of uh, of Russia. So. Mm. Should we see a bit more distancing from China from from Russia at the, at this summit? Because there definitely have been endorsements from those central republics for China compared to historically Russia. So this is where we could see the the no limits partnership between China and <laughs> Russia being tested. I think it's been tested oh, already. Wow. But <laughs> okay. Well, look, that's enough of the geopolitics. Let's let's talk finance and move over here. Hong Kong um, is launching a pilot digital currency program. The HKMA launched it. Uh, it's digital version or the pilot program for a digital version of the local currency on Thursday known as EHKD. Some 16 banks and payment companies, including the three note issuing banks, HSBC, Standard Chartered and Bank of China, will take part in the trial. Howard Lee, Deputy CEO of the HKMA, says they consider it the right time to explore a digital currency as residents have become more willing to use online banking services in recent years. Mm. Francis, what will this offer us that we can't do already? Well, uh, a digital currency will in time completely eliminate the, uh, what, what we have now is the check clearing system. Right now we have to write a check and then clear the bank and then we, we, we only get paid the next day. But in a digital transfer, you get instant payment. So, 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 uh, uh, I, I think for a bank, clearing a check costs you something like $50 or something, mm-hmm. even more. Outrageous. Yeah, outrageous. So, so, which means 
it will cut banks' expenses by really quite a lot. It will boost banks' profits. Uh, I, when I was working in banks, I, 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 they always say uh, counter service is very expensive and, and all that, and they had turned to automatic tellers. Um, but now with uh, digital currency, they can even eliminate the, dig- uh, the automatic teller machine. Mm. So when um, when we have our our one um, hundredth um, edition of the consumption vouchers from Paul Chan at <laughs> some time in the future, <laughs> this could all be paid through a digital currency directly into your bank account, presumably. Yeah, definitely, or or or, in, or into your your autobus card. Mm. Sam, are you enthused? Absolutely not. I think it's a very different story between electronic payments and electronic currency. Uh, we can also already do electric, electronic payment, whether it's called a credit card or it's called Octopus. The mm. problem with an electronic, uh, electronic uh, currency is actually the tokenization, which means effectively once you issue your, your, your currency, mm. it's traceable from start to finish, which is right. why there's a big push by the central banks. Mm. It's a big difference when you start, you know, you get your money from the, the, automat- the ATM. And from that point, the currency is completely fluid. You don't know who is using it. So it's good and bad because I don't necessarily want to know the central bank what I have bought. But with an electronic currency, it's traceable from the beginning to the end. Mm. Yeah. There's a big issue in terms of privacy. So the problem of the electronic currency is not the electronic techniques of payment because, you know, you, we, we see Alipay, we see Tencent, WeChat Pay. Electronic payments is there. It's very easy. But it's not an electronic currency. So I think that's where the distinction has to be done. If you bring an electronic currency, it has to have backstop against what I've just said. How far can, can a central bank go and look at your stuff? And the real problem will be adoption because technology is there. I've no doubt you can, you can settle in, in, uh, in electronically. Uh, Bitcoin has been experimental for the last 15 years. So you can settle in Bitcoins. Uh, you can find ways to accelerate payments, but the real problem is there. Mm. So are, are there going to be new things then? I mean, obviously this has been compared to electronic payments, but are there going to be completely new things that we can do with a digital currency that we can't do at the moment using electronic payments? I mean, I noticed, for example, two of the banks in the, the pilot scheme, uh, Fubon and Ripple Lab, said they're going to explore making it faster for Hong Kong to sell their real estate assets. <laughs> so are they, is this an example? Is this going to be something completely new that we can't do at the moment? It, it is exactly the, the, the positive side of what I was talking about because, you know, exactly the traceability of all the transactions, KYC is just simple. You know where the money is coming from, you know, where it's transited, and uh, it's very easy to say, well, I've got the money, I can just uh, sell my real estate because the money is clean. So that is the, uh, the positive side of it. Francis, I suppose one of the things, I don't know whether it's good or bad, but in effect, if we start using uh, an electronic currency, a central bank digital currency, the central bank will also know exactly where every single Hong Kong dollar is, won't they? Yeah, definitely. Is that good or (laughs) bad? Well, uh, for for the criminals, it's bad, (laughs) of Mm. course, because because it's traceable. Mm. It's like the e-toll. Uh, the, the the transport department just discovered five cars using fake license plates. So, so with uh, electronic currency, criminals has no way to hide because nobody is using cash now. How can you make a transaction that uh, that, that that you can hide from the tax authorities? Mm-hmm. And that and that is also very bad for cash uh, businesses like uh, restaurants and things like that because. They cannot hide their earnings. 
So there's no tax avoidance anymore with a <laughs> no, digital currency. Uh, that happened in China several years ago when they uh, uh, had the Alipay and WeChat Pay, and uh, uh, tax revenue increased by more than 30%. Mm. But at, at the end of the day, the criminals, they have their own way. So they're not <laughs> going to use electronic Hong Kong dollar if uh, they can use Bitcoin or any virtual currency they can. So I think that doesn't solve the problem of criminality. And you'll find other ways to launder. So I, for me, it's not that concern. Okay. Well, thank you both very much. Have a, have a great weekend. Good to see you. That's Sam Favre, who's Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital. And Francis Lun, who is the CEO of Geo Securities. <laughs> I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is Director of Staten Advice down in Australia. Good morning to you, Toby. Yeah, good morning, Peter. Let's start with the uh, the G7 uh, summit. Uh, global leaders are gathering in Hiroshima, Japan, for uh, the G7. I suspect China is going to be one of the big focuses coming out of this. Yeah, I think that there's two main topics. Clearly, the Ukraine-Russia conflict. I suspect that the G7 will try to either, you know, strengthen or impose new types of restrictions or sanctions. Um, there'll be some talk about potential peace proposal. Um, but as you mentioned, China assertiveness, I think, is the, the term that's often used mm. uh, in relation to the region, uh, China's assertiveness. And I suspect the G7 would, I think, previously said that they would speak candidly on the topic. So the words of coercion, intimidation, you know, uh, those sort of uh, that sort of language has been used previously, and probably will be part of the conversation again this time. And I wanted to ask you specifically about two countries that you know very well. First of all, where you are now, Australia. Where does Australia fit within this? Because clearly, um, it's aligning itself very closely with the West, isn't it? But at the same time, um, it's got very strong um, trade uh, dependencies with with China. I mean, China is its biggest export market, so it's got to tread a, a careful line, hasn't it? Yeah, I think Australia's been invited to the G7 on the sideline. Australia is part of the Quad, which is US, Japan and India. Uh, so it's uh, clearly, from a geopolitical perspective, it's uh, certainly aligned towards the West and it's been a long-term ally of the United States and the United Kingdom, as we know. Having said that, the relationship with China is improving and we've seen specifically around trade, uh, China now warming to uh, lifting some of the restrictions that we had on timber most recently. There's a news in the last 24 hours. Timber's been lifted and some of the other restrictions on coal and other exports that were coming into China. As you mentioned, Australia's biggest trading partner is China. There's no surprise given the size of the Chinese economy. And there is good dialogue going on between the various trade ministries um, between China and Australia. And there's potential, I think, that the Prime Minister may actually visit China later this year. So um, after the period of the pandemic where there was really an, a really frosty relationship between the two countries, I think it's starting to warm. Having said that, Australia is clearly aligned uh, with the United States um, uh, from a political perspective. So there's a limit to how, how much warmth can be developed in that relationship with China. Now, um, President Biden was due to visit um, Australia after the G7 and then go on to Papua New Guinea as well uh, for a, a summit with Pacific Island nation leaders. That got cancelled as part of uh, the, the showdown in Washington over the debt ceiling. So he's rushing back to uh, Washington at the weekend. But how much has the cancelling of this visit, has it damaged at all either relations with, with Australia or more importantly, maybe those Pacific islands? Because a country like Papua New Guinea doesn't get the chance to have 
never a visiting U.S. president very often, if at all. Um, are they, those nations seeing uh, the U.S. just as a fair weather friend? I don't think so. I think, you know, the, the circumstances around the domestic situation in the U.S., you know, uh, calls for the president to be there. Um, and you know, on that topic, you know, we can talk about that separately. But, yeah, I think it was significant that he would visit Papua New Guinea and Australia. And um, But I think uh, the Secretary of State is still continuing the visit. Uh, Blinken will still be there in PNG. So they'll still have dialogue uh, with the South Pacific uh, countries and the Modi will still visit Australia. So um, whilst um, uh, Japan has cancelled and the United States cancelled due to Biden's return, uh, Modi will still visit Australia. So, yeah, there'll be obviously some disappointment, clearly. It's a big event, but uh, in in terms of impact on uh, the U.S.'s position in the region, I think uh, people can separate the two issues. Because the U.S. is putting a lot of focus, isn't it, on the South Pacific nations now. It wants to strengthen ties with them. It's offering them more money. But, of course, China's doing the same. Yeah, well, I, it, clearly um, there is a there's a... I wouldn't say it's a battle, but there's definitely um, China's looking to extend its influence in the region. Mm. Um, it can do that by supporting South Pacific nations that possibly, and again, and I wouldn't say this is a fair statement, but possibly have been ignored or some to some extent by the West. You know, have been assumed the level of support that they you know that they have. Um, Australia is definitely working very closely and has, along with New Zealand, very closely with its South Pacific neighbours. Uh, in terms of uh, you know financial and other support, so yeah, I think it's a response. Clearly, uh, the US still sees it as a key, the region as a key one for them, both for in terms of uh, trade and in terms of geopolitics. So yeah, what we're seeing play out is not surprising uh, at the moment. It's a you know it's a competitive uh, environment, and uh, it'll continue. Mm. And so we'll be watching it closely. And another country that you know well, you, you lived there for a while, India, um, where do they fit in? Because they're in a, a sort of almost a unique position, aren't they? They have a relationship with Russia because Russia provides it with weapons, helps its security concerns. Um, it has has problems with its northern border with China, but obviously China is a key trading partner. And at the same time, the West is courting it um, as well. So it's, it's in a, an unusual position in many ways, isn't it? Well, I think almost a sweet spot for India because everyone wants to be attached to India because of the size of its growing economy, um, its uh, its position in the world uh, uh, growing more and more, its influence growing more and more. And, and so in a way, uh, India is well positioned to sort of uh, almost be uh, at, the, at the neutral level, you know, obviously doesn't align itself uh, directly with Russia or China or even the West. And so an economy that can stand on its own two feet, so I think it's the fourth largest economy by GDP, continuing to grow, there's an enormous opportunity. So, yeah, we're likely to see India's influence increase. Um, and politically, it'll be up to the the Indian government as to how it wants to position itself. Does it want to stay neutral or does it want to take a position? At this stage, I think it's very clear from an Indian perspective that they want to maintain their own independence um, and their, you know, their journey is a very much an Indian story, not one that's aligned to any particular country. Um, now, the reality of that is they need to do partnerships, they need capital, they need a whole lot of things, and they need good relations with their neighbours. But I think India is poised to maintain its independence um, uh, for its own purposes, which is, makes sense, but also because of its historic uh, alignments, that uh, conflict uh, with the West and with Russia. 
And of course, it can get away with buying a huge amount of Russian um, crude oil at a, a big discount. So I saw a survey that estimates it's saved about five billion dollars uh, so far in, in buying crude oil from uh, from Russia. Um, and the U.S. is keeping very quiet about it, isn't it? Really, and maybe in a way that it wouldn't uh, with with other countries who were doing the same. Yeah, I think uh, you know it's clear that um, Jashenka, the foreign minister, was very clear. Said you know it's uh, it's in India's interest, it's it's economic interest. Um, it has not condemned the Ukrainian war, but it's certainly not supported Russia in its uh, in its uh, war on Ukraine. So, uh, but you're right. I think the West has been very accommodative of the, of the situation. India understands fully that it's conflicted and is not uh, is not really pushing hard to, to change that position because of the long-term interest in having India as an ally. And what about its plan to become a global electronics manufacturing um, hub? It announced yesterday this $2.1 billion plan to get countries uh, to, to come and diversify their supply chains there. Uh, companies like Dell Technologies, HP uh, are reportedly taking advantage of these, uh, of these measures. This is presumably a continuation of what we've been talking about over the last few weeks where we've seen Apple diversify its supply chains and it now makes uh, about 7% of its global iPhone output in, uh, in India. Yeah, so I think, uh, and uh, the, often be careful when we quote stats, but the electronic services sector is, is the fastest growing export sector in India. Uh, 10 billion of exports in, in, in the 22 23 um, era. Um, clearly, in terms of domestic uh, demand for uh, electronics, it's huge. Around mm-hmm. 1.3 billion smartphones in India, but the export sector is the one which is most interesting for India. Uh, and to have this production-linked incentive for the PLIs, they call them in uh, in India, where they provide sort of effectively cash back, a direct incentive for companies to produce, uh, you know, uh, certain products, and in this case, uh, manufacturing of not only smartphones but laptops, tablets, those sort of things. Um, now, this is the you know this is the China Plus strategy for a lot of international companies, where most of the manufacturing is still driven by China, and Taiwan and the US in this sector. And uh, so China Plus is the is the sort of moniker put towards distribution of manufacturing across the region in in Asia, and that would include India, uh, Vietnam, uh, and others. So to you know to that extent, uh, India only represents about two to three percent of the overall electronic uh, manufacturing market, but it's likely to increase. So I think it's going to go from sort of eighty seven billion up to about three hundred billion by twenty twenty six. So. Um, that would make them about um, 10% maybe of the of, of the sector. So there's still a long way to go. Something in the order of 53% of, of the activity in this uh, sector globally is China, US and Taiwan. Um, finally, before we go for the weekend, let me let me get your thoughts on the, the US debt ceiling negotiations. Seems to be more optimism, doesn't there, at the moment, that this is going to get uh, resolved um, fairly soon and there certainly won't be a, a default on, on US debt. And we're seeing that affect the markets. Stocks were looking pretty good. Bond yields are moving up. The dollar's now at a three-month high. Um, is, is that optimism justified? It would appear so, Um you know, the market tends to, to, to read these things pretty well. Um, yeah, I was interested that it seemed to be a bit of a breakout in, in, in dollar index. Um, mm. That 
was probably the most obvious move, I think. Um, volatility uh, has also dropped back down to, to low 16s on the VIX. So, yeah, it, the optimism's there, and that's probably well-grounded, given, well-founded, should I say, given what uh, the Republicans have been saying through McCarthy and what Biden's been saying. There's always a risk that it falls over, but at this stage it looks pretty good. I'm, I'm wondering if even if um, we survive this debt ceiling uh, crisis, are there going to be some impacts from it nevertheless? Because we got to the point where the US Treasury is almost out of money. It's going to have to go on a massive bond-issuing uh, program to try and replenish its coffers, which is, of course, going to push up interest rates, drain liquidity from the banking system. Are there going to be some consequences, even if uh, the debt ceiling now is raised because of this standoff? Well, I think it's, that may be reflective of some of the moves we've seen in the bond market. I think with 20 basis points this week. So... Um, in 10-year yields anyway. So, yeah, I'd say the market's probably pricing that consequence. So if it's doing it now on the basis that the the agreement comes through and that the, the requirement for the Treasury to, to issue more aggressively in response is probably being priced by the market. So does it lead to new volatility? I don't think so. Um, if the assumption is that they get a debt ceiling agreement and that that consequence is a requirement for Treasury to be more aggressive, then the market would have priced that. I think you're, you're looking at risk and the risk is that they don't come to a deal and that's where the market um, has probably started to price out now. Toby, thank you very much indeed. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, who is Director at Staten Advice down in Sydney, Australia. Thank you very much for listening this morning and this week. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you on Monday. Joining me then are Lashar, Asia Chief Economist at BBBA, and Alex Frew-McMillan, a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com. With a view from mainland China, is Yan'an Wu, the Chairman and CEO of Surfing Group in Singapore. Have a great weekend. Money Talk. 